Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 25 through 32, Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. We are still working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 11, but we're just working our way through one phrase right now, which is the man is the head of a woman. And so we really are looking at some other biblical passages in order to flesh out the nature of male headship so that we won't misunderstand those things on the basis of our culture. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Please be seated. One of my favorite things to do at the church is premarital counseling. That is, I get to talk to two uh, generally joyful and encouraged young people looking ahead to the joy of a lifelong relationship that they will share together. And I have the opportunity just to weigh in, to bring biblical principles to bear, to learn more about them, and to encourage them to prepare wisely and joyfully for that union. And And I often find that even though many of those that I talk to are from solid Christian homes and solid churches, oftentimes this one, um, that there still, there tends to be a misunderstanding of exactly what love is. So as we come to our session this morning, talking about the nature of love in headship, how men exercise authority in love as Christ did, we, the, the wrestle is that we, we have many different definitions of love, even as Christians, and it can tend to be for us kind of vague. Well, God loves, we're to love, it has something to do with compassion and kindness, and you know, we should probably be nice to each other, but we don't necessarily have a good biblical foundation for what it truly means to love, and the Bible's very clear here. It gives a very strong definition of what it means to love, and so that's essential that my young people and that you... Those, who, those of you who are engaged uh, in that love and marriage, that you are properly understanding and gauging your love on the basis of biblical principles. One of the things that I'll ask them, usually very early on as we're talking about love, is, is, is I'll look at them and say, all right, if you enter into marriage and at some point your spouse, and particularly the men to, to the women, I'll, I'll say to the young men, if your spouse, if your wife stops responding to you, Completely. So you're loving her. She's not loving you. Are you willing to continue to do that until, until the day you die? Are, are you willing to continue to pour out your love for her even if she is not responding to you? Now, it's not that if they were sitting there and they didn't want to respond to one another that I would say, well, you need to get married and do that. No, we'd say, we need to stop this right away. So if the wife, you know, if the young woman turns says, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. All right, well, we're not going to enter into marriage. But if you enter into marriage, young men, are you willing, this is what I ask them, to continue to pour out your love if you get nothing in return? Now, some will kind of cavalierly say, of course. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa slow down. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you understood what you just said. Would you continue to pour out your love if you got nothing in return? Some are like, well, I wouldn't get married then. I'm like, well, you don't know that ahead of time. What you are pledging is a present and future love. You are pledging an ongoing love that is given even if you are not responded to, even if you don't get anything in return, because that's the love of God. It is not simply that you love as long as you are loved, that you'll give out love to the extent that you receive it. You are saying, when you stand at that altar and say, I do, you're saying, I do choose to love you for a lifetime regardless of your response. That's a challenging thought. And so, young men, if you're considering marriage and you're like, woo, I didn't know it meant that, you need to reconsider. You don't stand at the altar and say, I do, thinking, well, that's going to be conditional. We're not understanding what it means that it's unconditional. And men who are in marriage and men who are supposed to be living out this headship relationship, do you remember that that's what you pledged? You did pledge that whether you understood it or not when you said, I do. Now, this is not beat up men month. The goal is not to say, man, you're not doing this. I think most of you do know that. You did understand that. You are seeking to live that out, but it's good to have a reminder. That's why we have the Bible, and that's why we work through it consistently. When it says the man is ahead of a woman, it is so easy for the man to think of that in his authority role and not think of it in terms of the love that he pledged 
and the fact that he will give that love if he's not responded to. Love is perhaps the most commonly used term, of course, when it comes to relationships. I mean, let's just listen to any music station, and you're going to hear that word hundreds of times in you know, the first 15 minutes. And yet, the world has no idea what love means, and unfortunately, too many Christians don't. Even Christians, when they are told to love, struggle to understand what it is to express true biblical love, especially to those who are closest to them. Yet, as Corinthians is so clear, really we're building in 1 Corinthians towards chapter 13, which is that if you do anything without love, not just get married, but anything, I mean, any spiritual gift that you would have, that you would exhibit, anything you're doing in the church, if anything you're doing in life, if you do that without love, it's meaningless. So the understanding the concept is absolutely essential. And so we're going to try to just be very specific here. What does it mean when we say we love? And most specifically, how does a man exercise this love as he also lives out his headship or in light of the headship responsibility that he has? So what we'll see is that Christ-honoring male headship requires the exercise of true authority in overseeing the Christ-exalting direction of the home, but... That authority must be expressed with the consuming, sacrificial love of Christ. Christ honoring male headship requires the exercise of true authority in overseeing the Christ exalting direction of the home, but that authority must be expressed with consuming, sacrificial love of Christ. A man's headship has as its motivation and model the sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus. Now, Last week, we focused on the first aspect of headship. Really, as it's laid out in Ephesians 5, where the, the, the wife is to submit to her husband. That is, that he is to direct the partnership. This is the headship of a man in marriage. He is to direct the partnership of two spiritual equals in a God-glorifying direction, receiving full input and help from his wife, but holding and bearing the responsibility before God to direct that relationship in a way that glorifies Christ. That's headship. You, God holds you men accountable for whether you are seeking to do that. That's the meaning of the phrase that came right before in verse 3, where Christ is the head of every man. Males. Christ holds men responsible to exercise their authority in a way that pleases him. And they will give an account for that in the church and in their homes. It's a, it's a sacred responsibility. So you do have that authority. You are to exercise leadership. That is, if someone's going to submit, there has to be direction. You are leading and someone's coming underneath that so that they are following you. And we'll get to the wife's responsibility. We will get there. It's coming, right, next week. But nonetheless, so there is this leadership aspect of exercising authority that is required when it comes to headship. But we talked about the nature of that authority. So that was you know, the first part of headship is to exercise oversight in a biblical way and that you have to be a man of character. You cannot lead well, you can't exercise authority well unless you are a man who reflects Jesus. So we talked about the first characteristic and I just want to remind you of that. Because the first character quality was that you be spiritual, which means that your life is directed with one goal, that is to please and honor Christ. And only Christians can do that. Now, I think that's self-evident, but I just want to remind you of that. Spirituality is not some kind of Eastern mystic you know, ideal. Spirituality is to say, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It's to say, uh, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Only Christians can do that. You can't work that up in your heart. So you sit here listening to the message, you're like, oh, all right, I need to be spiritual, so I'll try to figure that out, and I'll read my Bible a little more, and I'll go to church a little more. No, there has to be a transformation that happens as a result of the Spirit of God using the Word of God to wash your heart clean as you repent and believe. So, so the necessity of spirituality means that you must know Christ. You must have bent the knee to Jesus, recognizing your need. Now, this meant ought to be actually be encouraging to you because your, your response to Christ in repentance and faith, that is response, he worked in your heart, you respond recognizing your sin and, and, and crying out to him for salvation, that that's the ground of the rest of your love. So if you're sitting here this morning wrestling to love, what you do is you just work your way backwards, which is, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus is the only way. I believe he's the God-man who died for me. I believe that I'm a sinner who's in desperate need of a Savior. And so if you believe those things, then you can build on top of that to build back or to begin to construct a proper love relationship with your wife. It's built on the gospel. It's built on the message of Christ and him crucified. So there's hope. You don't have to somehow you know, build this up on your own. Pull yourself up and accomplish this. It's built on what you already believe. You don't really have to believe anything new. 
You have to be reminded of what you already believe. Christ died for you. He loved you. Remember, you love both your love back to God and your love to others is a result of his love towards you. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Your love is reflective of his. It's a response, and it happens because the Spirit of God, Romans 5, has shed forth or has shed abroad this love in your hearts. And so you can spread it out. So even as this is a challenge to us, men, as Christians, it is possible, it is joyful, and it is built on the gospel. Remember what you believe, and then build your love in the power of Christ according to his word from there a man of character. We said you had to be a man who understands what you're leading towards. Good leaders know where they're going. And the one thing, the one place you're leading your family is that we, it would participate, you and your family participating in the equipping of the body of Christ for the making of disciples in preparation for the return of Christ. There's one sure thing that will happen in this world. And I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I can guarantee you that something is going to happen in the future. And what is that? That Christ will return. I can absolutely guarantee that because that's what Scripture says. All your hope is built there. Ultimately, your joy is built there. The promise of the life to come, you are building for the return of Christ. First Peter says you are to fix your hope completely on that. Men, as you seek to love your wives, you are doing so in light of this command. As you lead them, Christ is coming. So everything about your marriage is building into what, is, what Christ is doing through building his church. And so your career and, and your children, and, and your hobbies, all of that, the, the way you build into the church is so that it can make disciples because Christ is coming and people need to be rightly related to him. The wrath of God is coming. So that, man, that's what you're doing in your families. Don't lose sight of that. And in doing that, then you are required to establish a healthy Christ-honoring home. That's not an end into itself. That's part of your building into the church. And so you are to make physical provision. We talked about that. But too, too often men focus on that. And that's difficult enough. I mean, I've got a lot of young couples in the congregation and they're, they're just getting started and the, the young men are like, man, I have the burden, this weight of, of how I'm going to provide in a difficult environment, in a difficult uh, economy and there's, there's babies coming and how am I going to do all of this? Man, that's a real responsibility. It's, it's a real wrestle. But you have to focus first on, on the nature of why you're doing that. What, is, what did Jesus say when people were wrestling with anxiety? He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Young men, it isn't that you don't think about how to make provision and go to work and work hard, but you focus on the kingdom, and God provides those other things, and the kingdom is what? The reflection is in the church. That's how he's building it now. So, so there is a physical provision made, but the primary goal, young men, of what you're doing in your home is, is building a spiritual atmosphere, a direction there where you are reflecting Christ. And, and the word of God is, is the tone of your home. And the things that you do reflect those principles, joyful, fun things that you enjoy, yet always directed towards Christ. Men, you are responsible for this. You set the tone of that spiritual provision too often, again, men can be good at physical provision, but not so good at spiritual provision because they don't take the time to do that. They want physical things, but they don't necessarily pursue the spiritual aspects. And then the final thing we said last week was that at the end of the day, if you're exercising authority, a decision has to be made, and the man is to make that decision. When, there, when a decision must be made, and as we said, you don't have to make decisions about everything. You don't have to come together and say every little thing that happens, the man has to make that decision. No, but when that is necessary, when it's biblical command, biblical principle, a joint decision that requires a final answer, the man is to make that decision. And the wife is to graciously come underneath him. But we gave the caveats to that, which is that the man doesn't make that decision on the basis of his personal preference on the basis of thinking that he's somehow better than his wife, on the basis of simply consulting with himself, he consults with her as his helper and then makes the best decision on the counsel that they received together. And so he might decide that what he originally intended was the best way to go and ask his wife to follow him, or he may decide that as she gave input, he either modified that or her, her way was a lot better, so he leads in that direction. And then they walk together and walk forward in that. But there's a real need to make decisions, and men, you may not abandon those. And you may not say, well, my wife's got to make the decision, or you, know, you, you wanted to do that, so all right, we're going to go do that. No, you make the decision, and you own it. And yet in light of all of the, the drawing out of the gifts and talents of your wife. All right, now, that's to exercise 
oversight, but that oversight has to be exercised now for this morning in love. Love is a motivation. Sometimes we get confused. Well, it's love. Uh, We say, well, it's not just an emotion. So people say, well, love is a verb. Well, it is a verb. You do it, but it's more than that. It's not just doing things. When, When Christ said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, he did not equate love and obedience. They're not the same thing. Love motivates obedience. Obedience that isn't motivated by love isn't really true obedience. And as you obey out of love, you grow in love. So this motivation for a man to exercise his oversight is love, his desire to see his wife looking like Jesus. Let me just give you this definition because this is where often the confusion comes. And then we'll just flesh this out with with the principles that are laid out here in Ephesians 5. So uh, the definition of love to spouse, a biblical love for a man to love his wife, it looks like this. It's the Holy Spirit-empowered delight in relationship. Uh, the, the Spirit of God must do this. This is a supernatural love. It's not a human love. Right? All human loves are a reflection of this true Holy Spirit-empowered love. So you have to be a believer, and it's empowered then according to the principles of the Word of God. But it is a delight in relationship. As we'll see, the goal is that your wife would look like Christ, but she's not a project. It's not, well, I married you, and I'm just going to prop you up, and I'm going to make you look like Jesus. Slap some paint on there, some, you know, you look like Christ. No, it's a delight in relationship. You want to be intimate with her. The goal is to build together in your love for one another, expressed in communication, expressed in a, in a depth of sharing of, of your lives together, just as Christ does for us. He doesn't make us just projects. He enters into an intimate relationship with us. He comes to live inside of us and transforms us so that we have an interaction with him, which is a real relationship. Men, you are to be building that relationship. She's not there to simply facilitate your desires. She's not there so you can get done what you want to get done. She's not there just to be a project. Even even to help her look like Jesus, you are delighting in the relationship that you share as you deepen together. So it's this Holy Spirit-empowered delight in relationship with your wife, which causes you. This delight in relationship, this empowerment by the Spirit of God causes you to humbly obey every command of Scripture. I mean, that's how you actually flesh out this love. Because you delight in that relationship, there's one thing you do, and that's obey what Scripture says. The commands and the principles, every one of them, you don't overlook any of them because all of that reflects or relates to your love of your wife. If you're disobeying in any way, you are lacking love for her. You must understand that. It's not like, well, I'll disobey over here, but I really love my wife. Well, I mean, you may yet love her, but that love is failing in any place where you are not obeying the commands of Scripture. Man, are you willing to do that? That's what it means to love, humbly obeying every command of Scripture so that she would be continually conformed to the image of Christ. That's what you want for her. Why? Her highest good, your wife's highest good at any given time is that she would look like Jesus. That's your best, of course. If she looks like Christ, that's really going to be a benefit to you. But in the bigger picture, that's how Christ is glorified, and that's what you want for her. The one thing you would want is for your wife to look like Jesus because that is where she will be most satisfied. That's where she'll be most fulfilled. That's where she will be able to express her giftedness to the greatest extent. And so, men, you are seeking to build that, to help your wife look like Jesus in every way possible, really to release her potential to look like Jesus, not her inner potential to live her life, but to look like Christ through her own giftedness, through the personality that the Lord has given her. It's not like you become one flesh so that your wife looks like you. What a horrible thought. I think I shared this last week, that you would marry yourself, but men want to do this. I'm going to make my wife look like me. I'm going to look like Jesus. She has to look like Jesus just exactly the same way I do. Well, that would be horrible. Just look in the mirror. Don't get married and talk to yourself. Self, let's look like Jesus. Okay, and then you can agree with yourself, and it's great. Don't get married. But if you get married, you're helping your wife look like Jesus as the Lord is reflected through her, not you, right? Not, not just the way you look. So you want her to look like Christ. But now here comes the hard part, because most of you probably are like, all right, yeah, Chris, that's why, that's why I got married. Or now I realize that's why I got married, is so that my wife would look like Jesus. But this, that's regard to finish out this definition, that's regardless of the sacrifice necessary, Regardless of the sacrifice necessary, Christ went unto death. As we'll see, it's a sacrificial love. Are you, men, are you willing to do that regardless? To sacrifice your selfishness, sacrifice your sinfulness, sacrifice your own desires, sacrifice your lustfulness, sacrifice your pleasure? There's the rub, because 
when, it, when the rubber hits the road at that level, oftentimes men are not willing to do that. They, they know the principle. They want these things to happen. But when they have to deny themselves and take up their cross and love their wife by denying their own desires, they refuse. And therefore, their love grows cold. So regardless of the sacrifice necessary and without any thought of what you might receive in return. You see, that's tremendously difficult. It isn't that you don't want your wife to respond. Of course you do. That's why you got married. That's why you have a relationship. You desire a response. But if you don't get the response, you're not constantly gauging how you give on the basis of what you get back. You have to eliminate that from your mind. If she gives this to me, then I'll love her more. And if she responds more to me, then I'll extend a little bit more to her. No, you give and you pour out completely and totally in every way possible even if she doesn't. Now, please understand that your relationship is not going to be deep and intimate if she's not returning that response. I understand that. But nonetheless, it is what you are to be pouring out and not constantly trying to gauge it against whether or not you are receiving a response. Jesus loved you before you could even respond. He died for you while you were yet a sinner, says Romans 5a. His love was extended to you, not on the basis of your response. Now, again, we're not Christ. We can't do that perfectly or in the same way that he does it. But we are called to to echo that, to, to pattern ourselves after him in relationship in that way. We love regardless of whether we're being responded to. Now, that's a challenging definition, but that's what the Bible says. That's what you, when you said, I will love you, when you said, I do, what you really said was what? I love you, and I will love you until the end of time when you said that at the altar. Well, you said this, that you would have a Holy Spirit-empowered delight in your relationship, which would cause you to humbly obey every command of Scripture so that your wife would be continually conformed to the image of Christ regardless of the sacrifice necessary and without any thought of what you will receive in return. That's challenging, men. Yet that's what you promised. That's what you said you would give, and that's how you exercise your authority. Well, that means then, number one, if we consider now kind of in our, as we look through our passage, it's going to touch on these things, but that this love that you have is a selected love, which means what? You chose it. Christ's love for us, his love for the church, when it says we husbands love like Christ loved the church, he chose this. He was not forced to do this. It did not happen by accident. He chose it. Men, when you chose, I mean, this is the beauty, uh, particularly in America, you got to choose your spouse. Out of all the others that you might have chosen, you chose her. What a blessing. Until you actually got married. You're like, what have I done? Maybe there's some others I would have liked to have chosen. What happened here? No, you chose her. Aren't you glad that when God chooses you from before the beginning of time, they didn't go, oh, what have I done? You're out of here. I'm, you, know, you, didn't, you didn't turn out the way I was expecting. Now, again, I understand that the endless love of Christ and choosing from before the beginning of time from his standpoint incorporates all that we actually are. He knows all of that. But you know what? He didn't choose you on the basis of what you would do or who you were. He chose you because he wanted to. He set his love upon you. This is what Ephesians 1 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. I mean, if you thought I was making it up about love being, uh, having your wife look like Jesus, the reason you were chosen is so that she would be what? Holy and blameless. Love will do anything it takes for someone to be holy. That's a subtitle. John MacArthur's got a great book on, on love. And the subtitle of it is, it's the love of God, subtitle, he'll do whatever it takes to make you holy, including giving his own son for you. So it's a stunning definition of love. It's what it's all about. So he says, in, in his love for us, says he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, according to the kind intention of his will. In love, he chose you, but it wasn't because you had done anything good he chose you because he selected you. And that's the way, and that's, that's a, we have a reflection of that when you chose to love your wife. You made a choice. And when you go to the altar, that choice is set in covenantal context. You then make a promise to continue to love. God made a covenant with us. Right? In the sense that as we, as we repent and believe, the expression then of his covenant is that his love for us cannot be broken. He never abandons that love. He never, he never deserts us. There's a true, full covenant relationship in which that love will never be broken. Well, to the best that we can reflect that, that's what we're doing in marriage. 
And we do that publicly before God and others, and we say, I will make this commitment until the day I die. Now, again, I tell young men this, and I try to reflect this in the marriage ceremony. By the way, the marriage ceremony is really important. There's nothing that I say or that a pastor should say in a marriage ceremony that doesn't have significance. And I'm not really preaching to, to the couple. They're paying no attention to me. Right? They might nod and smile and like, what is the guy saying? Just you know, kiss the bride. That's where we want to head. Which is fine. I, that's totally okay because I've done 20 weeks, my 10-week premarital sessions, uh, 10 of them really turn into 20 weeks because it takes two weeks to get the homework done. So I've been talking to them for 20 weeks about this. And so I'm talking to you. When you show up at a wedding, I'm talking to the unbelieving family members and I'm, we're setting in context what you mean when you say, I do. This is essential. And what the couple is saying is, I'm committing to you forever or until we die. And the only way they could possibly do that is if it were the love of Christ undergirding that. They don't have the power to do that on their own. What an audacious claim. I'm going to love you till I die. And I'm I'm, I'm entering into a covenant that I'm never going to undo that. Wow, in Christ you can. You must never, can never. This is a, this is a statement that I use. You, you must never, and, and, you, and, and you may never break this covenant, and you have the power to do that in Christ. So this is a selected love. Men, did you forget that? I'll, I'll, I'll talk to men 20 years later. I, sh- I shouldn't have made that choice. I made a bad choice. Really? You made the choice. So therefore, it's the right choice. Therefore, it's God's decree that that's what you were to do because that's what you did, and therefore, you were to honor that choice forever. Honor it until you die or Christ returns. So men, don't make an excuse. Well, you know, I don't know that we did that right, or maybe we should have done something differently, or maybe we should. No, that's what you chose. By God's grace, you live it out. So it's a, it's a, a chosen love, a select love. It's also a strong love. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 you see, it has, that's the beauty of this. Love, the love of Christ is strong enough to see you through the difficulties. If it's not a strong love, you're done. Right? You don't have the strength in and of yourself to do this, but it is a, a strength built in the infinite power of Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. You're like, yeah, men like that one. Be strong. Act like men. And what's the next verse? Verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Strong men love because love is strong. It is the love of Christ. You need to read some more Song of Solomon. You're like, great, that sounds good. Song of Solomon, which most couples don't even read, it's about a love, the love of a man for his wife and of the wife's love in return for him. It's sweet, it's beautiful. It's not simply an allegory, it's, it's, a, it's an expression of God's love of marriage. And then he loves married love because it's to reflect his love. You need to make sure you work your way all the way through Song of Solomon, not just through the first parts, right? To ver- chapter 8, verse 6. Put me like a seal on your heart. Again, this is talking about married love. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Married love as reflected, right, in a love for Christ expressed in that marriage is as strong as death. It is the flame of death. God expressed in your marriage, there's nothing that you wouldn't give for it in that sense. It's valuable and it's strong and it overcomes difficulty. It's both the negative and positive, right? It's as strong as death. It won't, not even death can overcome it. And then if it's, if it looks like that love is being challenged, it says jealousy is as severe as shield that you would pursue that love, not allowing anything to get in the way of it, which is the way God loves you. He doesn't let things get in the way. He, he responds in righteous jealousy. Well, of course, that's because love is strong, and married love is the same. It's to, it's to reflect Christ in that way. Because many waters cannot quench love. Many difficulties, the loss of a child, the, the difficulties in, in, of, of circumstance and of, of a country that falls apart and of your financial situation that disappears, those things cannot quench love because it is the love of God expressed. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. The strength, the power of a love of a man for his wife and her in return, as it is done under God and in his strength, there's nothing more beautiful than that. It is to be, we already know from our passage, the reflection of Christ's love for his church. It's the most sacred, valuable, powerful, delightful love in the world of a man for his wife and her love for him in return. 
This strong love takes initiative, as we talked about last week. Christ didn't wait to love us. He loved us before we loved him. Men, you don't wait for your wife to love you. You initiate. It's not intimidated. A man who loves strongly isn't intimidated by the giftedness and intelligence of his wife. Christ doesn't go, wow, there's some people in the church that are better than me. So I'm not going to let them use their giftedness. Of course, that would be ridiculous. But men also, in reflecting this, are not to be intimidated by the things that, the ways that the Lord has gifted their wives. And so they're to cause those things to flourish. You're not to crush those things. You're not to dominate her so that she cannot express the, the creativeness and the, and the various kinds of giftedness that the, the Lord has built into her. You're supposed to fan those into flame. You're supposed to love to see those, not compete with her. Well, oh, you're, you know, you've got this great ministry and uh, you know, better shut that down because it, you know, people aren't looking to me. No, you, again, within the proper roles and as a married couple, you are fanning that into flame. You're not intimidated by that. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. It doesn't mean you're living with her as some kind of weakling. It means that you're living with her as a woman. You marry a woman, not a man. And you understand that, right? I mean, you've not married yourself. You've not married another man. You've married a woman. And God built her uniquely as a woman. And you are to understand that, appreciate that, and live according to that. Hey, women have unique characteristics. But I don't think this, that passage is necessarily talking about you know, the unique characteristics of just your wife. That's true. You need to understand that. But it's talking about her unique characteristics as a woman that isn't like you. You're a man. And she expresses, she's, she has the uniqueness of being an heir of life, a fellow heir of the grace of life as a woman. And you need to understand that men and not be intimidated by that or, or somehow pretend that that doesn't exist. This strong love then is not intimidated. It, it takes responsibility. It, it presses forward when things are difficult. So it is a strong love. This love, as in our passage, is a sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. It says in our text that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. That is to endure loss on the behalf or for the benefit of somebody else. I take the hit so that there's a benefit to someone. Christ went unto death for our benefit. Yes, it is to God's glory, certainly, but it was for our benefit because to be rightly related to him is the best thing that could ever happen to us. So he dies so that we live. He takes our sins so that we can have righteousness. Sacrificial love. Men, are you doing this? Are you considering the desires of Christ above your own? That's first. You'll never consider your wife's desires above your own if you don't consider Christ's desires because what he wants you to do is love your wife and love others and love him. So his desires come first. Men, how are you doing? We talked about Philippians 3 last week. Whatever things were gained to me, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he considers the needs of his wife above his own. That doesn't sound like dominating, domineering leadership. You're aware of her needs, and they're more important than yours. So you, hear me carefully, men. You would never, ever make a single decision which would not take into account the needs of your wife and would meet them in the best possible way. Now, that doesn't always mean you provide what she wants. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean you keep her from any difficulties and don't go into difficult and hard situations. We're not talking about that. We're talking about her true needs, which is why love is to be so carefully defined as looking like Jesus, but she would never do anything which would jeopardize her in some true sense. Never. Because you are sacrificing for her good, which is to look like Christ. So you consider her needs, Philippians 2, 3. You do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, which models Christ. Now, To make this a little bit more practical, when we're considering the nature of sacrificial love, you need to understand that lazy people don't make good sacrificers, right? I I keep making this point in various ways, but the problem is so often, we, I mean, you know these truths. Most of you have heard this kind of message over and over. The problem is that anywhere in your life where you're not doing it, there's a spiritual sluggardliness which is set in. That's how, how the Bible describes lazy. We don't like that word. It's, it's has, you know, no man would ever want to be called a sluggard. You might even call him lazy and be, that's okay. You walk up to him and say, you're a sluggard, you might get popped. Right? Just, no man wants to hear that. But that's what the Bible calls, not just men, women also, but this is the context of men in marriage. People that don't accomplish their biblical responsibilities are called sluggards. And men, if you're not loving sacrificially, it means there's a place in your life where you are lazy. You're being a spiritual sluggard. Now, I'm not just speaking to you, of course, because my own spiritual sluggardliness shows up far too often. 
in ways that, that are, are unfortunate. I've been married for 34 years, and I still have areas of spiritual laziness. And in fact, they, they come and go, right? Because in any given confrontation or discussion with my wife, that laziness can flare up in which I refuse to respond to her. So this isn't something that just goes away. But Proverbs 13.4 is clear. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing but the soul, the soul, no, it's not just talking about external actions. The soul of the diligent is made fat. Men, most of you sitting here this morning long for your wife to look like Jesus. You long for your home to reflect Christ. This is what you want. But you need to understand that just wanting it is not sufficient. Just hearing another lesson on it is not sufficient. Sluggards long for things and don't put in the effort to get them or produce them, and they die as a result of it. it. Their lives are consumed because they want, but they never put in the effort to receive. Men, that might be you in your marriage. I talked to men 20 years into marriage, and it doesn't look like this, and it's not like this, and I wish it were like this, and I have so many things that I wanted. And, and yet, in their own lives, their spiritual laziness is a huge part of that problem, and they don't want to change because it takes effort. Sacrifice, of course, is hard. You can hear lots of lessons on it, but then you're going to have to figure out, where am I being lazy? The slugger doesn't plow, Proverbs 24, after the autumn. So he begs during the harvest. Man, have you been plowing, sowing, so that your marriage might reap the spiritual fruit of that? It's not going to happen accidentally. It's not going to happen automatically. Well, we went to church, and we heard lots of sermons, and I read the Bible a bunch, but you didn't sacrifice. You didn't, at the level where the biblical principle had to be fleshed out in action, you refused, you were a sluggard. In that place, your marriage will be weak. It's challenging, but this is the reality. Sometimes men will be very, very motivated in their work, very motivated in their exercise, very motivated in their hunting, but they are not motivated to get up in the morning and give over their own selfish desires to pour out love and care for their wives. So don't mistake yourself, men. Well, I'm, yeah, I, I work all the time. I work 80 hours a week, and you know, I make lots of money, and so I'm, I'm a hard worker. Externally, maybe, but it may be that your soul is craving. Your soul is not fat, and your marriage is suffering. You're not plowing. Again, I run into men 30 years down the road, and, and their marriage is falling apart, and it's always everybody else's fault. And I'm like, man, have you, have you been plowing? Have you been planting so that you can reap properly? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you loving your wife? Are you denying yourself consistently? Well, no, because she's at fault. Well, no, because circumstances have been hard. Well, no, because there's always a reason why they couldn't plant. Sluggards always have an excuse. Always. They're wonderful justifiers. They're the best justifiers ever. There's no excuse for being a sluggard, but we make them too often. And here's the big problem. Proverbs 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men that can give a discreet answer. Here's the problem with a true sluggard. He won't change because he's convinced he's right. He's lied to himself. Seven men will come to him and say, you're wrong, you need to change, you need to grow. His dad will come to him, the church will come to him, a friend will come to him, and he refuses to change. I know better. I'm, I'm smarter than you. I've got this down. Everyone else is at fault, not me. I run, unfortunately, into too many men like that. And they're wrestling in their marriages, they're wrestling to walk with God, but they're not going to listen to me. I'm like, why are we here then? Why are we having a discussion? Why do you, if, you, if, you, if you come to church and don't change, if you sit in a counseling office and don't change, why are you here? Well, because I want everyone else to change. And that will fix all of my problems. If you all change, then we'll all be good. And these sluggardly men will not change. Men, that might be you. You might have areas in your life your wife has told you over and over you need to change here, hon. You need, this is not right. You, you need to get some help. Or you, and, and you refuse because you got it all down. Sluggards won't change because they're wiser in their own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. So spiritual sluggardliness may be the reason that you aren't sacrificing because you didn't walk in this morning not already knowing this. When I said men sacrifice because Christ sacrificed for the church, you weren't like, I never heard that concept before. 99% of you have heard it a thousand times. Now, you need to hear it again. That's fine. But it's probably the spiritual sluggardness in your life that needs to be burned away. Young men, unmarried men, you know the greatest pandemic for unmarried men today? Sluggardliness. Laziness. They only do what they want to do. They do not do the hard things. You're going to make a bad husband really bad 
because you're going to get in marriage and be just as sluggardly, and it's going to be easier because you've got a sinner that you're trying to work with, and now they're sleeping next to you. Young men, you, you need to learn how to spiritually work. Well, this love is also a sanctifying love, number four here, because it says that Christ washes the church with the word. And this is the picture of what the husband is to do for his wife. Then he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present, verse 27, to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Man, this is not you sitting down at night and preaching at your wife, pointing out all of her difficulties and all the things she does wrong. I'm just washing my wife with the word. Now you're washing her with self-righteousness. That is not what she needs. Yes, she needs to know biblical principles. She probably knows them, though. So you are to live them out before her. Yes, you are to remind her as you sit down and remind yourselves together. This is how we need to seek the Lord. When there are wrestles or struggles, you're seeking to bring biblical principles to bear. But you're doing this in a joyful, winsome way because you want her to, you want to present her in all her glory, as it were. You want, you want to see her reflecting Christ through whom the Lord has made her to be. Because the, the church, Christ presents to himself the church in all her glory, as it were. That is washed clean. That's, that honors and magnifies him. And that's what you want for her. Not to just do what you want or to stop doing the things that bug you. No, you want her to reflect without spot or wrinkle the Lord Jesus Christ. And when she knows you are for her like that, not just trying to, you know, command her to do things or, or to dominate her or in self-righteousness, at, you know, demanding that she do righteous things. When she knows that you are for her, that as you approach her in her sin, that you are seeking to wash her clean, gently and carefully, not with a fire hose, but gently washing her by, by bringing the word of God to bear, then she will respond often, not always, often. When she knows that this is what you want, that you love the word of God and that you love the glory of God, that's a sanctifying love. You want her to have no spot or wrinkle. Your wife is not a project. She's a precious child of God. And you are fanning into flame that precious nature of who she is. And as I said, you want her to look like Jesus, not you. She doesn't exist to satisfy your desires and magnify your potential. Now, this love is satisfying. This Christ-honoring love, this is the sweetness of it. Notice it goes on in our text to say, Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. I mean, you know when you're hungry, and when you eat food, when you're hungry, what happens? You're satisfied, right? That's a pretty basic principle. And so what you are to be doing is, is, is pouring out your love towards your wife, and that ought to be satisfying to you. Well, it's satisfying if she responds. It's satisfying if I get what I want. That's not what it means. If you are pouring out love towards your wife in a self-sacrificing way, you ought, that ought to be delightful to you. Just doing that, not that you're beating your chest. Look, you know, I did all this. I'm so delighted in myself. That's not the issue. The issue is as you pursue righteousness, living with your wife in this understanding way, loving her well, that ought to satisfy you. Not the response you get, but the fact that you are honoring the Lord in that. And at the end of the day, if she didn't respond and things are going really badly and your kids are walking away from the Lord and you have sought by his grace to pour out love in proper ways, confessing and repenting when you don't, then you can put your head on the pillow satisfied. That's hard to do. If your wife is not responding, if things are not going well, it's hard, but that's, that's the call. This is a satisfying love. As you pour it out, that is to satisfy you because you are doing what is best for her. You're satisfying yourself by pouring out towards her. That's how you get that satisfaction. Again, like meeting your own needs. All right, so it's a satisfying love. Again, young men, you had best be practicing this now, that you are satisfied not by getting what you want. You are satisfied by doing what Christ wants. This is not a party. And you know, yeah, I got, I got my pleasure. I got my, you know, I got all the stuff I want. I got my straight A's. I, I got people loving me. I got my, you know, my com commendation in my musical career. So man, life is great. No, did you please God as you did that? And if you walk away with nothing and you honor the Lord, you need to be satisfied. You must be satisfied. Young men, are you? Are you satisfied in the fact that you are seeking to please and honor the Lord? It's not that you can't have or enjoy those other things. Those are wonderful when someone recognizes you or when you accomplish what you wanted to. But that's not where the satisfaction comes from. That's really hard. That's a practiced work. And if you enter into marriage without having practiced that, 
You have a hard time finding true satisfaction by loving your wife in marriage. This is a sustaining love. It goes on. It, it builds, it strengthens, it nourishes. Because no one ever hated his own flesh, but does what? Nourishes it and cherishes it. Right? Again, you feed yourself when you're hungry. You walk out you know, in the freezing cold and, and, your, and your fingers are, are freezing. You're like, who cares about you? I mean, just fingers. doesn't matter. No, they're your fingers. So what do you do? You put on gloves, most of you. All right? You, know, you bash a body part. You, know, you smack it with a hammer. You're like, who cares about that body part? It's just a finger. No, you respond because it hurt and you do something to fix it. Men are the biggest babies. They get a little sniffle and you're like, oh, I'm falling apart. Some of you, not all of you. You, you what? Well, I mean, because you want to feel better. That's not wrong. Well, it is wrong to be a baby. Don't, don't baby yourselves overly. But you want to feel better, right? So if your wife is hurting, and you look at her, you're like, just my wife. What? She's part of your body. She's hurting you care for her. And this is not just physically. It is physically. This is spiritually. Nourish and cherish. To bring to maturity, this nourish to, to promote health and strength. Your home is like a spiritual gym for your wife because you're encouraging her, strengthening her, and she's built up, not dominated by you, not crushed by you, not flattened by you, enhanced, strengthened, to, to cherish, to make warm, to treat with tenderness and affection. Again, this doesn't mean you don't say hard things. It doesn't mean you don't have to work through difficult things. It doesn't mean that, that, that you might be in a place as you pursue ministry that's really hard. It doesn't mean that you, everything about the circumstances has to be warm. It means regardless of the difficulty, your home is warmed by Christ and the example that he sets and the, the kinds of care that you show towards her. And this is regardless of any physical external circumstance. Your home can be warm in this way. Men, you are to build. It's not a womanly characteristic. You're to make your home warm. The, the picture is of a wife who would, who would take a child and nourish it and, and, and feed it. So this is, this is a male trait that you're to build this kind of warmth into your home. Men wrestle with this. Right? But it's not because they aren't able to do it. It's because they make excuses not to do it. And, and, and we each wrestle in different ways here. You're provi- providing an environment in which she can flourish. So there's this nourishing and cherishing. And even this leaving and cleaving. It says, you know, so he, he leaves, they leave the father and mother and, and they cleave to one another. They become one flesh. There's security in that. There's nourishing in that. You're, we're one flesh. We're, I'm not going to go after anyone else. We are together. My parents aren't going to get in the way of this. Our children aren't going to break us up. Circumstances aren't going to wipe us out. We are one flesh. We are together. There's a nourishment in that for your wife to know that you are in it together. You are a team and you're going to work it out. Even if she's wrestling, even if you're wrestling, even if the kids are going bad, we're in this together. We're one flesh. Guys, that takes work because so often you get discouraged. And you're like, I don't feel like we're one flesh and I don't feel like this is going well. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm being responded to. You are to build it. You work at it. You cling to it. Because it is who you are. But it isn't easy. Seven, there's this love is symbolic. Right? It is a picture that it's supposed to be presenting. This mystery is great, he says in verse 32, but I'm speaking with reference to what? To Christ and the church. It just takes, the, takes marriage, that, a human relationship, but, but just elevates it into the sweetest and deepest of things because it's to reflect Jesus, and how he responds to his church. It's not like Paul invented the metaphor. Say, oh, wow, marriage is a great metaphor for Christ and the church. No, God built marriage to reflect Christ and the church from before the beginning of time. That's how he designed it. It wasn't an accidental discovery by some preacher using an illustration. No, God built marriage for this very purpose so that we would be able to reflect the beautiful nature of Christ and his love for his people now, here, here's the wrestle. Because every, every one of you at different levels, your, your home reflects or doesn't reflect the character of Christ in the church. And that can be very discouraging to you. Right? My home doesn't seem to be reflecting that much, so the symbol isn't really great, so I'm going to be discouraged. No, the goal is that you are seeking that. No home is going to perfectly reflect that. The, how your wife responds, you know, what's going, there's the, the spiritual work of others is going to, to factor into how clearly your home reflects Christ. But if that's your goal, if that's your passion, if that's your pursuit, then that's sufficient. That's all that you can do. You desire that symbol to be portrayed and you pursue it until you die 
or until Christ comes. And you can't base it on, well, it wasn't all that I wanted. When, when, we talk, when I talk to wives, this tends to be, a, uh, next week, this tends to be a great struggle for them. They're like, I know our home is supposed to reflect Christ in the church, but my husband doesn't reflect Christ, and this home doesn't reflect Christ, so I'm going to be discouraged and bitter the rest of my life. No, are you seeking to do that? Is that your desire? That's sufficient. And that's what the Lord requires of you. Now, the goal is to make it look as much like Christ in the church as possible. As we do that, and we, are, we can do that in Christ, then the world looks at that and says, oh, that's what that looks like. You keep telling them how great Christ is, how great it is to be part of the church, and they're like, show me. Okay, come into my home and see how I love my wife. Sometimes even if they know you, you say, say you are in a difficult marriage and your wife is difficult, and they watch you love her anyway. They say, watch this. Not me, watch Christ. And the world looks at the marriages of a church and says, oh, that's what it would be like to be loved by Christ in his church. I'd love that. Let me repent of sin. Let me recognize my desperate need. Because we want to be this. Husbands, you set the tone. It's not just you. It's a partnership. For this to be effective, there needs to be a response. We'll talk about that next week. But husbands, you are to set the tone. So, so maybe you need to go home. And, and sit down with your wife after some prayer and thought and writing some things out and just ask her, Hun, as, we, as I went down through these seven things, what, what, do, what do you feel like we can, what do you think is good and what do you think we can work on? And you make this commitment, I'm not going to respond to you. See, when I ask my wife questions like that, she'll tell me, well, I, you know, I don't think we're doing it in this way. And I'll immediately give her the 10 reasons as to why we are. Or you missed these 10 things. I'd love to say I don't do that after 34 years of marriage, but I still do. And she's like, ooh. You said you were going to be quiet. I'm like, oh, I did. So then I'll just, just try to listen. You can respond. That doesn't mean she's going to be right. It doesn't mean everything she says is going to be right. Women are not infallible. They may totally miss and misunderstand some of the things that you are trying to do. They might, but you just listen. And you think it through, and then you respond back in biblical ways, and you work on this together, and you work it out. Ladies, be gentle. If your husband asks you this, don't, oh, 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 you're building the list right now. And man, he asked and the storm has just come. That's not, that's not going to be helpful to you. Give him, give him hope. I mean that. Give him hope. Show him the things that are going well. And then help him to see the things that he can fix. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us, for the love of Christ for us. Thank you that in every way you have patterned for us and lived for us the way that you call us to live and you've empowered us to this. You've not left us on our own. We have your word and your spirit and your church, your care and your concern as our loving father. And I pray that we would take hold of these things. I pray for the men of this church that they would rise to this challenge through the, the strength and power that you give to them that they might love their wives well and that young men preparing for this would be prepared to love well that we would reflect Christ well. In your precious name, amen.